0: Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast. I'm going to keep this short. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories. You no, know, we every haven't done a roundup
1: week. of other podcasts about opera late, late, lately. Uh, we, we know mean, we, we love aria code, but there are other shows out there. There's like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or opera, drugs and rock. Is that what it's called? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. But there are other people out there, so we don't know if if other people are bringing people the stories they need to know every week.
0: These are other really great opera podcasts for me to poop on. (laughs) Hey, check it out. Five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. Twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins.
1: So if you haven't seen our ads on social media, it's because we don't have five bucks or maybe five bucks isn't enough to cover our ads on social media. Or maybe we need to learn how to build the audience for those things. Look,
0: twenty bucks. That's enough to buy a face mask for our whole team so they don't catch coronavirus. We could share the mask, yeah. That is not... <laughs> gonna
2: work. Yes, right. the mask is not even gonna work. We're all doomed. The Olympics are
0: canceled. Thank you, Matt Cummings. Look, don't think you can give. Oh, yes, you can. Simply review us on Apple Podcasts, share our Facebook posts, or just retweet okay. us. it. and tell
1: people, hey, I like this podcast. And that guy Oliver here is single.
0: Most of all, keep listening to America's talk a Radio Show about opera. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Live
3: from Chicago, you're listening to Opera. Box score uh, Let's get ready to rumble.
0: Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show. That's normally live, but just a podcast for now about opera, period. From the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago, I'm your host, George Cedarquist, connecting you with co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. All right, on the episode, well, we had plenty of March Madness a few months ago, and that was without any basketball, but while the NCAA Final Four was canceled, Michigan Opera Theater posted its own opera bracket on Instagram in mid-April. The OBS team is going to work through that very bracket over our next three shows, picking winners of the Ultimate Opera Showdown. But first, if you feel like you've been spending a lot of time at home, try singing all the parts of a Bach passion by yourself. We feature creative consultant Oliver Camacho's exclusive interview with the co-creator and star of Bachfest Leipzig's St. John Passion for solo tenor, harpsichord, organ, and percussion, That artist features highly in the piece. He's the only singer in the piece. It's Icelandic tenor Benedikt Kristiansson. And then, two-minute drill, it's opera at the drive-in in in London, of all places. Plus, we continue to document all things opera-related in the time of corona. We want to hear your voice. Are you an employee of the opera world whose work has been affected by COVID-19? A fan who's desperate to see something live in person? Let us know how you're coping with your stay-at-home order. Here's a message from Lillian in Seattle. A bunch of us had planned to converge in Chicago this April for Lyric Opera of Chicago's presentation of Wagner's Ring Cycle. To not bask in disappointment, we decided to study the cycle on our own. I've been doing so each Sunday via conference call. We're picking away at it slowly and intensely. Right now, we're up to scene two of Die Valqueure, My favorite, Lillian writes, it's a glorious way to spend Sunday mornings. Thanks, Lillian. Great way to use the time. I, I wonder if we could measure the length of the quarantine and ring cycles. Hey, everyone to our listeners, send your message or your voice memo of up to 60 seconds to us at Opera Box Score email.com, and we just might feature you on our show. A little bit of sports talk before we get going. NFL Draft, of course, continued last weekend. That's a huge win for the league. NFL does not seem to be too affected by Corona so far. Uh, who is affected is the Bears. Somehow they didn't have a single first-round pick, and when they did finally pick in the second round, it was a cornerback. Complete head-scratcher up there at Hollis Hall. On the north side of Chicago. All right, let's talk some opera.
3: Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle.
0: On Friday, April 10th, thousands of people around the world were introduced to Icelandic tenor Benedikt Kristiansson, whose concept for a one man St. John passion made us all rethink how to make music together in the time of Corona performance was streamed live from Bachfest, Leipzig, and as of today, has been viewed over 350,000 times now. We know that this isn't technically opera, but there's certainly something compelling about the way that Christensen presented his retelling of the age-old story, striking all those notes of anger, grief, desperation, solitude. Oliver wants me to warn you that he barely kept his own emotions at bay during the interview. We had to edit out his ugly cry. Sorry, buddy. Let's start with a taste of the opening course of the passion from that Good Friday performance.
4: Yeah. So um, basically that, what you saw was our 11th performance of that.
5: Ah, okay.
4: Yeah. So we actually performed this one year ago for the first time in the Radial System in Berlin. Okay. And um, basically it all started uh, on Good Friday, 2018, where, um, funny enough, I didn't have I didn't have a gig on that day, but I pretty much had a gig every other day during that month. So I was like at home and went to sleep. And then at nine in the morning, I get a phone call at somebody sick in the, in the Philharmonie in, in Berlin. And if I could jump into the Matthew Passion, which was at three. And I was like, OK, no problem. I don't have anything else to do. As evangelist?
1: or as in the Yes, oh,
4: evangelist wait. and arias. And um, yeah, so I did that, and really I knew most of the people there, so it wasn't any problem, it was a good gig, and uh, in the audience was a certain guy called Steven Walter, and he is the um, director of a festival in Esslingen, which is near Stuttgart, and um, he actually came to me after the performance and said he was really spellbound by, by everything and and he actually had the initiative to do this. So he said, uh, "What do you think about doing this with uh, a percussionist?" And I was like, "Wow, well, that sounds crazy." And um, and I just said, "Yo, let me think about it." <clears throat> and he was he was talking about like me doing it alone, with a percussionist, uh, and a, yeah, and an organist. And I just said, "Okay, I'll just call you in a week." And uh, and then I was just. Non-stop thinking about how like, how how the hell I could solve all of the problems being alone, and um, and then I just uh, figured out this concept that the you know the, the Jews that the bad guys that they don't have a voice you know they they shout or have this kind of sprechgesang, and then I wanted to implement the audience, which was Bach's uh, original intention for the passions, for the, the, uh, the congregation to sing the chorales. And then I knew I, I couldn't skip anything of the recitatives because that's the core of the story, and I, that's what was, was my goal, to, to tell the story just in a very different way, that you, would, that you would absolutely get a passion, and also from Bach, but just totally different. As in, you wouldn't go and see like a disrespectful um, project, disrespectful, um, uh, what's the word? Versuch was the word I was, uh, which basically means just, uh, you know, a, a it's okay, try. We, can, we
1: can all look that up, So that's uh, fine, so. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
4: um, yeah. Yeah, so I, I didn't, because I know this would be extremely extravagant and mm. I knew that it would possibly offend people. Um, I I knew that if I had to do this, I I had to make it totally clear that I was doing it wholeheartedly, you know, that I was I was totally sacrificing myself for the passion, you know, mm. and um, and I'm very happy that that has pretty much always been the case, that people have understood it the right way, and that you have, you know, I also you know wanted to do it alone because then you have the which is maybe slightly blasphemous, I don't know, but uh, you have the connection between the, the the lone singer that is sacrificing himself on stage by singing everything, and to to Jesus, which is um, you know walking this road to his death, you know.
1: I have to say that, I mean, there are so many things that I want to comment on there. But if, I, if we start talking about that, I'm probably not going to be able to continue the interview. So uh, let's talk okay. about how you decided which arias to sing. Um,
4: yeah, you know, funny enough that I don't think the tenor arias. It's is sort of funny. <laughs> but, um, you know, the reason for that is there are two reasons for that. And, re- you know, reason one is the orchestration just doesn't work well for the instruments that we had. Mm-hmm. Ach, mein Sehnis for tutti orchestra, you know, and it just it it just doesn't sound great with with all of the uh, percussion instruments or and the organ. And then erwege erwege also also sort of well, actually that could work. It would be difficult, but it could work, but it's just very long.
1: Yeah, it's a voice buster. <laughs>
4: yes, it is. It is. I mean, I love the area. It's fantastic. But it was clear from the start that we had to cut something because we were aiming at doing it in like under 90 minutes mm-hmm. because we thought it would be impossible if we would do it, you know, in original length. It would just simply be too long for me. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs>
4: but it would also be too long for the audience, you know, because because we don't have that many colors to choose from because we're just three, you mm-hmm. know. We don't have an orchestra, we don't have a choir, we don't have other soloists, we just have that. So it has to be very, yeah, boiled down, sort of.
1: So how did you choose... Uh, basically, the,
4: oh. the basically the, the bass aria, I, I didn't sing that because mm-hmm. I can't sing that, because I can't sing a low G. Um, oh, I think you also, can. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, on a bad day, I can, yeah. maybe. But... Uh, But uh, we don't have the the choir to do the wohin, wohin, wohin. And then von den Stricken, I just cut for reasons to shorten. I I could sing that aria, but I just thought story-wise, it's not that important, so I'll cut that one.
1: And how did you and um, your colleagues decide on the specific instrumentation, like marimba of all things?
4: Yeah, we just... Basically, Philip just came when we rehearsed for the first time. He just came with his whole car of instruments mm-hmm. and we just thought it over and we just listened to how the sound was. And, and we thought the marimba was perfect. For example, in Main Toiler Highland, when the choir comes in, in the bass area, that was beautiful. You know, when 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 the when he plays the chorale in this sort of deep sounding uh, frequency, sounds really good. And then the, the, the Jews, um, you know, all these sort of, sort of vulgar uh, choirs, it was also very, very good there. And then for the more kind of shouty uh, choirs, like uh, or something like that, it was better to have the, the more upper frequency instruments, which is kind of sort of penetrating yeah
1: so I should we should give credit to uh, Philip Lamprecht, the percussionist and the harpsichord player Alina albach uh, and when the credits roll at the end of this thing, it, it says that the three of you uh, were in charge of arranging it, so we should credit them
4: yeah absolutely yeah yeah this was all a very much a together kind of thing I mean basically what uh, what they're doing is just picking basically instruments from the from the score to play, you know, you know, it's easier when you're doing an aria for just one flute, like Folge obviously Philipp just plays the flute line on the, on the vibraphone mm-hmm. and, uh, and Elena just plays the continuo. But when you have like, uh, when you have like a choir, like the Kreuziger choir, you know, then, then Elena really has to pick what, what does she play, you know, because mm-hmm. there's so many instruments doing all kinds of stuff there. She has to pick what to play. And then we decided, or you know, in that probably case, I decided because the Kreuziger choir is the only turba choir which is not cut. It is both times done full length. And I wanted to have it like that because, because I wanted it to be uncomfortable. I wanted this... this this very evil whispering of the Kreuziger to be, you know, a bit too long because it's very uncomfortable because, because when I'm doing it in a, in, with an audience, I just, I just mercilessly point at people in the audience Uh and just whisper in their face, like the devil. (laughs) And, you know, people look the other way all the time because they just, it's incredibly uncomfortable. And that's exactly the effect that I, that I wanted to have. And in, in this performance, in the Thomas Kirche, I just... You you, could, you can't see it because they they switch cameras. But I looked into the camera the entire time. Oh. And, uh, yeah, I was hoping they wouldn't cut that. But, you know, uh, they, of course, have to switch cameras and stuff.
1: But, yeah. yeah. Well, I want to talk more specifically about your performance, but just one more thing about the concept. Yeah. One of the more beautiful... T- I mean, there were so many beautiful things, but one of the touches that... I think, made a lot of us who are singers and who are missing our, you know, Holy Week performances to cut to some of these choirs around the world singing the chorales. I mean, sometimes just that the hearing voices other than yours suddenly changing the the texture and you could see people and it was so moving. Uh, How did you decide to do that and you know because you also had the the choir the the quartet in the Thomaskirche I think that was a stroke of genius and I just wanted to know what was your selection process for which choirs were going to get into be a part of this
4: actually that didn't have anything to do with me because uh, that was all the Bach festival in Leipzig that um that wanted it to to they wanted to implement the choirs from around the world to do this because of their festival that got canceled Mm -hmm. had the, um, had the motto, we are family. Yes. So they were going to invite all the box societies in the world to come and take part in the festival. So they were of course heartbroken that that was not going to happen. So they somehow wanted to, to, wanted to take this passion of ours to, to make them participate a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, basically the quartet in the church that also uh, you know okay maybe that was my idea but it was um, still because we had to have this particular church for it we had to also um, work with the cantor with the um, with the music headmaster of the church mm-hmm. Gotthold Schwarz and um, and he very much wanted to be a part of this which which was just great that he did, and then he just basically invited the singers that lived in leipzig that, that sing in that church very often, and uh, the instrumentalists, so um, they kind of managed, managed to build a sort of congregation in the middle of the church because oh. because a normal normally, I conduct the audience of course. Mm. So, so this this whole conducting the audience thing was just transformed into this double thing. One, the, the uh, Thomas Kirche in the middle doing it, and then the international virtual choir.
1: I mean, there are so many uh, different ideas out there of how to create music in this time, how to collaborate with people. And not all of it is good. And I I appreciate everybody wanting to continue expressing themselves and trying to create art. But um, there are some things that's clear are not working and people keep trying the same thing and it's not working. (laughs) But somehow this, this concept, now that I know that it's not completely original for this occasion, this concept seems so polished and so, you know, just well thought out. That it was mm. so surprising, I think, to, to a lot of us. Like, how is he going to make this work? And it really did feel <laughs> like you were thinking, oh, well, at some point in the there's going to be a pandemic and we're not going to be able to do this thing. So <laughs> I'm going to start working on this. <laughs> yeah. But um uh, before we start talking about your specific performance, I just want to also hear what you have to say about Roots Vol, which which, um, yeah, I mean, that just destroyed me. And I mean, it's already such <laughs> a beautiful piece, but the idea for how you you cut and, you know, you you made it a cappella and you chose, I don't know how you decided to create a melody out of this, you know, this thing. Can you talk about that?
4: Yeah, sure. I mean, actually, the melody is not very complex. Basically, what I'm singing in the beginning, where, where I don't sing text, is basically just the main uh, high voice of the orchestra. Mm-hmm. It's just the, the first violins, oboes and flutes that play this Melody, but probably you don't you don't recognize it straight away because the melody, um, what you know, the the voices cross, you know, mm-hmm. in in the orchestra arrangement. So you don't always have the feeling who is voice one and voice two. And then I decided to um, sing the verse of the B part uh, because that text is so gripping. Macht mir den Himmel auf open for me the heavens and 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 close the doors to hell, it's just very fitting, you know, it's just thought that text was very very strong, so I decided to to do that. Um, but basically why I chose it to do it a cappella, I think it's just a... Um, it's the idea, like, what do you do when you're at the point where root wall is supposed to start? The piece that you know, everybody that knows this that this particular piece of music is sort of waiting for. It. And what do you do when you don't have a big choir, you don't have a big orchestra, and you don't have a conductor? Well, you do the exact opposite. You don't try to do something big. You do it as small as possible. So I wanted to save the effect of the a cappella effect for, for the end. So you have you you have the emotional feeling of Glutfall just just a single voice doing it. And I, I think I you know, I'm very proud of that because that always is a great moment. What we do after that, that, that they also sing, you know, I, I thought that has to be because it has to be our passion. You know, it's not a, it's a, it's, it's a passion where everybody is involved. So what Every, the audience is involved and and the percussionist sings and the Chambalo woman, she also sings, you know, because we're all, we're all equal here.
1: Yeah. You know? For those who haven't seen it yet, uh, at after he sings Vol, the uh, final chorale, um, Alina and um, Philip come up and they stand next to you and, you know, they have not uttered a word this entire time and now we get to hear their voices. And it's, it's such an effect because we have not heard their voices and we don't know what they're going to sound like. And they haven't been singing this whole time and who are they warmed up and like, and it feels very um, earthy, you know, like their, their tone qualities are on on one hand, they're much fresher than you are. <laughs> Absolutely. But um, it, yeah, no. Yeah, it just feels yeah, like people singing, you wasn't know. wasn't
4: very uh, good at the intonation of the, the final chorus, but, you know, that can happen.
1: Well, I want to begin to talk about your specific performance because, and we can start there with the root bowl. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it feels like. There are pieces that I love so much. Mostly they're operas, but not always. Where I am so intimate with the piece that I know every character, I know every recit. And sometimes you just, maybe even to comfort yourself, you you sing the whole thing, you know? And um, it's something you would never do for an audience. Yeah. And here you did it for, like what's going to probably be millions of people
3: and yeah, it, was, yeah. uh,
1: it was so whew, it was so vulnerable and so i have to i'm sorry
4: it's okay yeah yeah i i know it's uh but that's exactly the the thing that i'm trying to 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 do to uh, to be brave to just be absolutely in yourself, just like like you're like you're singing for yourself, because that has the that has this exactly the, this effect. Because you're not you're not trying to do anything. Just basically like you're singing for yourself. You know, like Brahms wrote "Für Elise" just for himself, and some publisher just published it. You know, you know, great thing is when you're just uh, being intimate um, and not not trying to. Win people over or something. You're just are just being 100 percent yourself, and yeah. But still,
1: I mean, this takes technique and this takes um, stamina. And how do you pace yourself for something like that? And how do you how do you suppress the emotions so that you can phonate?
4: Basically, um, I think it I think it in a way because when I was younger, I used to sing in a lot of funerals. And uh, and uh, I thought it was very, very difficult at first. And I couldn't really, I, I couldn't uh, separate my own emotions to, the, to, to what was going on. You know, I, have, I felt majorly attached to everybody. And I was like, oh, I thought it was so difficult to sing. Where, and then I just realized, wait a minute, this isn't the part that I'm supposed to be playing here i am supposed to comfort i am supposed to sing the best i can so that other people can let their emotions free and that is the part that i have to play here and we always have a different part to play in life sometimes you're the child then you become the parent you know so in this particular case that's that's how i distance myself but but you know i'm not really You know, maybe it's not the wrong choice of words because I'm totally feeling everything. I'm just deciding that... I'm just just knowing what part I'm playing. You know, I am now giving people the chance to open up their emotions, you know. I'm not going to do that until, you know, after the performance. Did
1: you, when you were working out the roadmap for yourself, did you count how many different tone qualities you can rely on? Because, like, I'm a singer, and so I know that I have, like, these tricks. I can add the chest voice, or I can go off voice and focus more on the head tone, and there are Mm -hmm. really just three tone qualities, and, you know, you can play a little bit with the three to make them sound more exaggerated, but in in reality, there are three. And Mm -hmm. for you, I felt like maybe there were, like, five or six, seven that you were, <laughs> you, were, you were playing with? I mean, did you really decide, okay, for Zerflisa, I really need to go as feminine as possible for, um, I forget the aria that comes after Essis vollbracht," the, the bass aria, the name of yeah. it. Um, yeah, you really brought out the fundamental in that one, and then you sang Isis vollbracht," and you gave us, I don't know, three just in that aria alone, <laughs> so I don't know. Like I, this, These things, when I do them, when I try to do them, I end up uh, not being able to sing beautifully, like if I emphasize one too long, then the the middle goes away and I can't blend everything. You know?
4: Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. But funny thing, I I don't. Um, well, I don't think about that in that way. I just think about what I want to do with the character. You know, like when I sing Pilot, I just have a certain way of sing a certain way of thinking what kind of dude is he or what kind of dude do I want him to be. And then when I sing Jesus, something completely different. And then the evangelist, well, for me, it's, of course, the easiest to sing the evangelist because I've done it so many times and it sits naturally in my voice. And Zerfise also sits naturally in my voice because it's just a high aria. Uh, so i I'm never worried about te fleece, I am worried about the other stuff, and when it comes to thinking about so like stamina and endurance, yeah, I always think about the low notes because they you know they go away that 's the first thing to go away you know if you if you if you don't um use your technique uh right so like assist for practice of course very difficult, and my entire Highland is also very difficult. But what I think about there is always, you know, I never sing an unsupported note. I just have to support super well everything that I'm doing. And always when I'm singing low stuff, I have to open up my chest and open up my throat as wide as I can somehow. I don't know, like talking about singing technique is always very...
1: No, I I I love it. I love it because I, I know that... My friends who are waiting to hear this interview are so curious about that as well. So what the hell yeah. are you doing with your voice?
4: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, if it takes anything, it just takes guts. That's just the one thing. Like I mean, I mean when I decided to do this, I thought, okay, maybe I'm just performing a harikiri on myself. And uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe this is the worst idea ever. Uh, and then just we did one run through. And I was still alive. And then I thought, okay, it won't get worse than that. So um. I'll just build on that. And yeah, that you just have to sort of make a, make a map um, of the performance. Like, okay, I can't go full throttle here. You know, I'll have to save my energy for that. Or... But it's also, I mean, it, it, is a, it is a crazy one-man act. So you basically, you just have to have the right state of mind to do it. You just have to, just have to have the balls to do it. Yeah. And if you if you doubt yourself for one second, well, then you have lost.
1: Did you have somebody um, giving you feedback when you were running it through originally? Like, oh, that doesn't work, or this is too ugly, or this is too uncomfortable. Like you were talking about pointing at the audience, or you know, your voice is starting to lose the color here, or anything like that, to help you. No.
4: <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Nobody help me. No.
1: Well, I mean, I have to say like I'm uh, I love things that are weird. Um and this is as you said yourself, like there are some moments where it's like this is very difficult to watch, you know, like not that it's not interesting, but it just does feel uncomfortable, you know. And I'm just wondering what yeah. you're drawing on like what theatrical experience or what acting experience you might have had to say, this is the the posture to use, or this is the gesture to use, or this is how I should, you know, use my eyebrows in this moment, you know?
4: Yeah. Uh, I just, that stuff, that stuff I I don't really, it just happens.
3: Hmm.
4: I don't really uh, think about it that much. I just, I just think about the story
3: Mm -hmm.
4: and I think about, I just think about what is Jesus saying now and how would how would I as a pilot react to that? And what is Pilate saying now and how would Jesus react to that? And just I'm just basically totally in the story, you know. And that's that's the only thing I'm thinking about. Just thinking about being in the story and how to and thus how to portray all reactions and actions
1: so you suggested earlier about how maybe some people would not uh accept this version of this masterpiece what has now been some of the feedback you've gotten about about what you've done
4: it's been remarkable i mean it's uh, i've never known anything like it basically the first 2 days they were just i got emails or text messages or, or messages on Facebook basically constantly. Um, and you know, nobody said it was crap, so that's nice. (laughs) So now everybody was pretty amazed. Um, so it was, it was, um, it was, it was completely amazing, but I, I mean, I can also say it was, this was the best performance of this by far from, from us all. I mean, it really brought out the best. Uh, for in, in us all, the uh, the amount of pressure that was that was on us.
1: So, do you now have any other ideas for uh, completely reimagined? Are you going to sing a solo Messiah next, or are you going to sing <laughs> the Ring Cycle or something like that?
4: Yeah, I don't know. I uh, now I don't have any other ideas about taking a whole piece apart. I mean, just. Just if you were thinking about it, I'm not doing the Matthew Passion like that. (laughs) I've I've already uh, I've already seen that that would not work. Well,
1: what are you working on right now? What What does it look? I know we're all working on nothing except you know baking bread and stuff like that. But um, can we look forward to something else from you now that everybody knows who you are and is paying attention to your career?
4: Well, actually, what I'm doing um, next month, I plan on uh, having a having a Icelandic a cappella folk song month on my Facebook site. Okay. So I'm just going to record 31 uh, very short Icelandic folk songs and um, publish one every day with some that have some funny melodies and funny texts. Which, yeah. But that's basically what I'm working on. Like you say basically working on baking bread, which I'm also doing. Um, but other than that, you know, just basically planning the fall or maybe next year.
1: So um, on behalf of people who have seen this thing, and I know um, friends of mine who are were very excited that I was going to talk to you, um, I just want to say thank you. You know, we all are missing our gigs. We all miss our St. Matthew and St. John's that got canceled in March. And uh, very heartbreaking to, you know, to be rehearsing for those things and to not be able to present them. But uh, a lot of us ended up watching your performance live and some of us even had our scores with us and we're singing the chorales and we did feel, you know, those moments of being with of a global community of people celebrating this music. And I even have to say, I'm not a big Bach person. A lot of my colleagues and peers know that I'm Bach, I find to be very difficult to sing and intellectually challenging and et cetera. Um, but I've, I feel like I've never felt this piece as uh, powerfully as I did on Good Friday with you. So um, thank you for giving that to us
4: it was definitely my pleasure, and I'm very glad that it had such, an, such a tremendously huge effect. And uh, yeah, so I'm happy to hear something like that, because that was exactly the plan, you know, because when you have so many people on stage and so many, like, you have maybe 30 opinions on one soloist or something, and you're just sort of distracting um What the what the story is, you know, like if the alto has a very weird green dress, you maybe can't stop thinking about that, (laughs) and that's just that it's ruining the whole story. Yeah, (laughs) you know, these things, and and when you just have one person, then, well, then it's you can't your attention cannot be manipulated to left or right because you just have it like basically just listening to one priest.
1: Go on for 90 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Benedict Christensen, thank you so much.
4: Thank you for having me.
3: Opera Class. Sports Radio crass. This is Opera Box Score.
0: All right, here's a question for you. If the characters in Tosca and... In Bohem faced off against each other in a basketball game, who would win? That's coming up next. It's America's Talk Radio Show about Opera.
1: What started in May 2019 as a slow-burning arts advocacy and independent journalism site, Zach Finkelstein's Middle Class has blown to a crit has blown up to a critical source of COVID crisis related arts reporting. And as of March 2020, middle has hundred thousand hits.
5: He's the voice of the people,
1: Oliver. Heard on Opera Score at the site's inception, tenor Zach Fickelstein used to write about the business side of singing, balancing budgets, taxes. Now he and a growing team of... The
2: real glamour of the singing world. Yes.
1: He and a growing team of contributors write about the classical musical world, classical music world, uh, how it's on fire. That was a great reading, Oliver. Um, Nailed it. Yeah, so we've been... um, talking about middle-class artists for a few months now and uh we just want you guys our listeners to check it out Middleclassartists.com.
6: what what I think is so important about the work that Zach does and kind of what it's turned into is that like the the business of singing has been something and when I say business I mean like business with a capital B the business of singing is something that isn't taught to you it is kind of a survival of the fittest. If you're either smart enough and have enough context clues to just figure it out, you do it. Uh, If you don't, then there's a really good chance that you're not going to be successful in this industry because so much of this is about self-promotion being self-made. And so the fact that he really digs in deep and, and makes it pretty transparent, like, here's what's going on. This is how taxes are done. These are the things that you need to know. This is stuff that generations of singers should have had access to. We would have heard so many better voices if something like this was more transparent earlier on not just me being bitter about not knowing this at the beginning of my career. I promise. There are so many other things that need to do,
1: too. How do you build a durable, flexible, and successful classical arts career? What is happening in the classical music world right now? Who is paying their artists in the COVID era? Who is leaving them out in the cold, firing them by tweet? What is the classical music world going to look like when the COVID epidemic is over, and how do we get there? Go to middleclassartist.com.
3: Talk talk on Opera Box Score.
0: Thanks everybody again for hanging out with us on the podcast only version of our show. All right, as we all know, sports are canceled, so is opera, but Michigan Opera Theater has found a way to scratch both of those itches at once with a post on Instagram, which asks the question: what is the greatest opera? All right, so the operas are broken down into a classic. NCAA style bracket. You know the team here at Opera Box Score is ready to put these pieces through their paces to find out which opera will come out on top this year. It's a substitute for March Madness a couple of months ago, but it's not a poor substitute. Here's how it works. Each of the four of us is going to take a region or a language in the case of opera, and it's populated by eight titles. We're going to give you our take on these criteria, the opera's popularity of music, strength of libretto, the calling card roles for legendary singers, and its status both with audience and connoisseurs. We got four brackets. Weston and Matt are going to work through their brackets on this week's show. Oliver and I will do them next week. And then two weeks from tonight, the final four, of opera. All right, Matt Cummings, you are up first in the upper left-hand corner. It's the Italian region.
2: Yeah. So the first matchup in the Italian region is going to be Rossini's Barber Seville versus Verdi's Rigoletto. So this one is honestly like really tough for me because Rossini is a favorite of favorite composer of mine, but I would not say that Barber Seville is my favorite opera of his um uh even if it is like his most performed work his most popular i don't necessarily think that it's his strongest overall uh mostly because of pacing issues um it, it can kind of drag uh and so both of these operas are huge powerhouses of popular operas they i'm sure have been in the top 20 performed of the last five decades probably maybe maybe only two decades um and they each contain one of the absolutely most recognizable operatic excerpts in the canon with the of Seville overture being used in Looney Tunes, and everyone and their mother knows the tune to La Donne Immobile from Rigoletto.
1: I'll also say um, that, I don't want to interrupt you, but I'll also say that Figaro's aria, Largo Fuctotum, is like the aria that people think of when they think of opera singer
2: for men that's like the aria that gets used all the
5: time yeah. is figaro, figaro 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 yeah
2: true and everyone always thinks it's about marriage of figaro <laughs> if they if they are not opera box score listeners but certainly <laughs> most of this podcast would make that mistake um so when you're looking at the librettos of these shows both of them are from uh like the first half of the 19th century and that is a time that was very, very, a lot of the, basically every opera in my quadrant is from that time period. So they're very, very guided by conventions. And I had to get a little bit creative in terms of, you know, uh, evaluating how successful they were in both speaking to modern audiences and uh, fulfilling the genres of what would have been expected at the time. Uh, so Barbara of Seville has this really sparkling libretto and it's a really great comic zany adaptation of the Beaumarchais play. Uh, and Rigoletto is like pretty compact and it's a really searing opera. It's, adapt- it's adapted from the Victor of uh, a Victor play that is really um, pretty brutal about the nobility and how they just do whatever they want and don't care about the consequences. And then, so I, I really would say that they're pretty much on... Even footing when it cut until you look at the as you go down the list. If you're looking at calling card roles, both of these operas, the principal roles are like exemplars of what people who specialize in this type of music should be able to do. Um, but really, in Rigoletto, those three principal roles—the Duke, Gilda, and Rigoletto—those are like the apotheosis of Italian opera roles. It is much easier to find major singers who didn't, who have never sung these roles than to find, than to list every major singer who has performed any of them. Uh, and what ha- why I have to give it to Rigoletto by a hair is that it's not only a stunning music, but it has a shocking amount of range in terms of what kind of sonic atmosphere you're listening to. Uh, and while both operas really shine in their ensemble writing, uh, the the way that Verdi is able to advance the drama through those ensembles compared to what would have been expected in a Rossini opera is um, really unparalleled and here is a clip that really uh, illustrates that. This is the quartet from Act 3, Bella Figlia dell'Amore with uh, Luciano Pavarotti singing the main lead. was Luciana Pavarotti joined by Joan Sutherland, Isola Jones, and Leonucci in the quartet from Act 3. Talk about
5: a dream team.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a dream team, and it is a little bit of an upset Rigoletto coming over Barbara of Seville in this opening round. Alright, so you've got Tosca by Puccini and La Boheme. Puccini
2: all out slog. They, these two operas do completely different things. Tosca is like this campy potboiler of a thriller that's like on a freight train in the middle of a hurricane that's also in Rome, I guess. Uh, and Bohem is a really charming but also tragic story of young bohemians living in Paris. They're both staples of the canon and both are really compact shows. They're both only about two hours long, which for uh, opera is on the shorter end, as we know, all know um Tosca though I feel like the characters and the in the scenario of it are are so larger than life that it can be really hard to identify with um as opposed to La Boheme which at this point is basically like a stand-in for the sentimentality and romance that you can get from an opera um as we saw like in the movie Moonstruck and I love Tosca it has its high points um but Bohem, I feel, has a much defter touch in drawing the characters and also uh, in setting out these scenes that evolve a little bit more organically. Uh, And part of that is because it has this larger cast of characters and he can kind of deploy them one at a time to, to add push and pull into the action. You know, you have you have this love duet and then all of a sudden between Rodolfo and Mimi and then Marcello's voice floats through the window and you remember about and and then you see those worlds kind of colliding uh or in act three you've got a duet between Mimi and Marcello and then Rodolfo comes out and then all of a sudden you hear Musetta's laughter off stage and it's kind of like that scene in Amadeus where he he's taking a duet and building it into an octet but much on a much smaller and more intimate and human scale these are both very iconic operas uh they both have a very iconic zeffirelli production associated with it. <laughs> <laughs> the tusca from london with maria Ca- that was one of the final produ- uh, productions maria Callas ever performed in uh and also the bohème from the met that they still do over 30 years later uh, the one that's featured in moonstruck uh What's really interesting to me is that while tosca is most is morally more of a soprano vehicle, there's great parts in there for the for the baritone uh, scarpia and the tenor is Caporadosi to be sure but like it's Tosca's show, and no one is no one is gonna question that uh one more often than not is a tenor vehicle i would say uh typically the mo- i would say the most famous member of the cast is the Rodolfo, and maybe that's just because Pavarotti made his debut in it and basically made a career out of playing Rodolfo it, it, in every opera. You know, every character he did was some <laughs> <with> some <laughs> form of Rodolfo slash Nemorino. Even his duke is kind of Rodolfo. Um, but the women in Bohem, the Mimi and Musetta, they're great roles, but they're usually cast these days as like up-and-coming singers. And I think that that's partially because the way the opera is written is so Strong that it can it it is cast proof. Even if you end up with some clunkers in there, uh, the opera is so well written that it really does all of the work for you.
1: There's so much testosterone Uh, in the opera too that you really need the tenor to shine because he's singing against you know three other male voices in a lot of scenes, and so the the tenor has to be exceptional. And then you have the the Cafe Momus scene. Um, which, you know, there's like 100 people on the stage. So if your tenor and soprano don't shine there, then it's over.
0: Or your <laughs> director, for that matter. That act <laughs> two of Bohem is literally the hardest act in the entire repertoire to stage.
2: And it's the one that everyone knows, not for no reason.
1: So you
2: know, I also want to um,
1: say, I, I, I assume that you're de- you've are you already declared Bohem as the winner, right, before we hear this
2: clip. Well, I, I am, I'm going to go with Bohem, and the clip that I picked for Bohem, I is just from the little pre-duet in act one, just the, their dialogue that they go back and forth when they're flirting in the dark, uh, before KJ Manina, before Mi Kiamano Mimi, before Osuave Vanchula, Fanchula, three great, great hits. But honestly, the, the, the preamble to that whole Shayna is one of my favorite parts of it just because it's so cute and there's so much character there and you really get a sense of who these people are just from their little one word back and forths. This is a live performance from La Scala with our old friend Luciano Pavarotti coming back and Ileana Kotrubash as Mimi.
1: I just want to say I agree with you on this call um, because I think that Bohème has moments of joy and moments of comedy and um, it's sometimes just very romantic and you have to have that kind of mixture of emotions in order for the drama to hit. I feel like Tosca is drama from the very beginning and it's just and like...
2: It's- yeah, I, and it's drama that is a lot harder to connect to. That It's it's much less human. It's this larger-than-life kind of melodrama.
0: All right, so we're going on to the third pairing now. So this is the first one in this region that has two operas from two very different time periods, Don Giovanni and Lucia di Lammermore. They're They're probably,
2: I haven't checked the dates on this, they're probably about as far apart as Barbara of Seville and Rigoletto, but since Don Giovanni is is a Mozart opera, and it depending on who you, it, it kind of depends on who you ask whether people really count Mozart opera as full, you know, red blooded, red sauce Italian because it's not quite that, but it is the precursor to all of that. Um, and what is what really stands out for me here is that the other the previous two pairings have been a lot closer together in terms of like how the operas work, but this one is you're taking the an ensemble show par excellence, Don Giovanni, where there's really not, you can make a case for about three different characters to be the star of that show. Um, and only one of them is Don Giovanni. And Lucia de Lammermoor. which if you are not going to see Lucia sing the mad scene, I really don't know why you're going. <laughs> and and, and, it's not, and it's not that none of the other parts of Lucia are worthwhile, but you're going to see the mad scene. It's the eighteen minutes. That's the reason why the opera stayed in the repertoire. Um, so I would say that this round starts with Lucia at a disadvantage because it has that kind of star vehicle, uh, and because of that, the scenes really vary based on how how much the uh, based on like which combination of characters is in them. Uh, the music for Lucia, I think, is a, is a lot stronger than the music for any of the men, even though. The men have really nice music. I, I don't think any of it is as memorable as like, Renavino Silencio. I will or, go.
1: I will go on record as saying you can cut the
2: Wolfcrag scene. I don't need it. <laughs> That's another point against mm-hmm. Gia is Don Giovanni. It does drag a little bit in the second half, in second act, because it's the version that we do of it these days is this Frankenstein version between the Vienna premiere and the Prague premiere. So there are too many arias in the version that we do right now because you're not supposed to do all of those arias in one performance. But like, I'm not gonna say no to Mo- more Mozart. Uh, I still I'll, think that I'll Lucia no actually to, has.
1: I'll say no to Metati Boy. I don't need that aria.
2: <laughs> Fair. The the <laughs> Mezzetto aria no one needs. But like, are you gonna? Are you really gonna cut uh, Mitradi?
1: No. Or are you really Me- or Boy,
2: the, the one? Uh, the second Don Giovanni aria after after the sextet oh that one too yeah yeah yeah. i was talking about the mazzetto is fine i'll keep him he's adorable but the uh il mio tesoro was not supposed to be in the version of the opera that mitra is in so when you have them back to back it feels a little bit off balance Mm -hmm. but they're both such good arias that i really could not sacrifice either one of them um but going back to what george said earlier that Mozart's Don Giovanni does come from an earlier time, and so if all of the operas we've talking we've been talking about so far have formal constraints to them, like put another level on that when you're when you're talking about Enlightenment classical era opera. And in spite of all of that, Don Giovanni comes out as being a more human story, uh, which is not only frightening but also hilarious. The, the libretto, the, the Ponte libretto, is still one of the, like, the towering achievements of opera over 200 years later. Uh, and just about every singer on earth has also come through Don Giovanni at some point. Yep. Uh, and not only does it do comedy better than Lucia, you could argue that it does drama just as well, as you'll hear from this clip of Court and Sam Raimi singing the commendatory scene.
1: So, Don Giovanni comes out of that round. The next pairing is Traviata, Traviata
2: versus Norma, which I expect to be my most controversial pick because TBH, I'm going with Norma. Honestly, Traviata. Mood. Tra- Traviata is one of the most popular operas in the world. It is commonly thought of as being one of Verdi's greatest. But really, a lot of Act Two drags for me. I think that the the duet between her and between Violetta and um, Germont Père goes on for way too long. I think the scene of matadors is interminable <laughs> for sure, <laughs> and they really it really drags down a lot of the best music that there. And Norma is um, this really interesting, ahead of her time, daring, bold character who is so interesting uh, and way more the master of her own fate than we normally find uh, women in opera to be. It, it Norma's a little bit more of a connoisseur's opera because bel canto music can be a little bit harder to, di- to digest if you don't know what you're listening for because of the way that the, for- the aria form is so strict and it's so specific and if you're not doing it well it can come off as a little formulaic but Norma does all of that stuff brilliantly. And the, the two female characters, Norma and Adalgisa, are among the more complex and interesting characters in opera. And they more than make up for how boring Polione is. <laughs> uh, and if you're going to ask, like, how can I still pick the opera where there's one character that I don't care about at all? It's because Norma's music offers such a complete depiction of this complicated woman uh, and you get to, because you get to see her interact with every everyone else in the opera. She's a leader. She's a friend. She's a tutor. She's a mother. She's a spurned lover. She's a daughter. And her music is a little bit different from scene to scene, but her identity as this like force to be reckoned with shines through in every scene. And you can definitely hear that when you listen to possibly the most uh, linked, the most closely linked singer to the role of Norma, who is Maria Callas. Uh, Here's a little bit of her singing the finale.
0: So we are into the sweet 16 here. Rigoletto versus Bohem and Don Giovanni versus Norma. Take it away, Matt Cummings.
2: So for my first face-off, I'm going with Rigoletto again. Uh, and that comes down to personal preference more than anything else. Wow, Verdi's
0: over music... La Boheme. Geez, man, we're going to get some nasty letters.
2: Verdi's music just, like, speaks to me on a level more so than Puccini. Uh, and, I think, and I think that part of the reason why is because he's working in that, like, slightly earlier idiom. Uh, and there, there's formal anchors to grab onto, but also he's able to use them to his advantage so masterfully that it re- that really speaks to me. Uh, Puccini kind of can do whatever he wants, and it's a little bit nakedly raw and emotional that to me wears a little bit after a while. Um, and while Bohemia, while, while the Bohemians of Bohem are really endearing, the antics can. The, the antics in those scenes can can last a little bit long if it's not a really, really well-directed production. Uh, and so bo- it, it really becomes clear when you're watching the opera that Bohème is like taken from these episodic short stories, and so not every piece fits together, whereas in Rigoletto, it's a very, very cohesive and um, economical telling of the story. Uh, and you can hear how that... Really makes the ending tragic in this clip, uh, which is from a live performance that they met with Leonard Warren and Vidu Sayal. <laughs>
3: Me, I
0: us through um, don giovanni and norma
2: and i love norma this was really hard i wish that she could have gone into the elite eight um but it falls down for a similar reason to lucia in that too much of the richness of this opera are are concentrated into one character here i'll say two characters because abel Giza's music is also pretty wonderful um but when those characters aren't involved it's significantly worse as an opera uh, and Don Giovanni really doesn't have that kind of turbulence. It is smooth sailing from beginning to end in terms of quality. Um, plus, it's not like Don Giovanni doesn't have the kind of fireworks and excitement that you're looking for, uh, maybe when you go to see Norma, as you can hear here from this clip of Carol Vaness singing the final aria from Don Anna Non Meteor. Ah.
0: All right, Matt, coming. So Rigoletto on this upset run through the bracket is going to face off with Don Giovanni for that chance to go to the final four. What's it going to be? And
2: it's going to be Don Giovanni by a hair, for me. Personal taste is definitely involved here, but Mozart opera for me transcends the genre in a way that that later operas don't always do. And part of that is just because of like when it happened and this focus on enlightenment and that there's kind of this moral and universal theme to the opera itself. And Don Giovanni leans on that to show a wide swath of humanity, the the lesson. And and it just feels a lot more universal and relatable. Um, And that also really comes through in the way that Mozart constructs the act one finale. And I love a Mozart act one finale. They are always they are some of my favorite moments in opera and Don Giovanni is no exception. And the way that it moves seamlessly between the different sections of, and musical genres is such a masterful feat. And Verdi does this as well, but he definitely learned from, from Mozart in the way that he finds brilliance in this strict form, in, in these strict forms. I just want to revisit the ensembles again and again. This is a clip from the act one finale from a live performance of Don Giovanni in Salzburg with Christopher Maltman, Doroteo Richman, Annette Dash, Matthew Bonzani, Katia Residuiuna, Erwin Schwatt, and Alex Esposito. Stop. Stop.
0: All right, so Don Giovanni working its way... As an Italian way, opera.
1: That's so strange. <laughs> I, and, Beat Traviata, of all things.
0: Strange entry, but hey, remember remember when George Mason University did that deep run through the NCAAs about five years ago? That was bizarre times. And we're moving over now to the Slavic-German bracket. That's the lower right
5: also known as the display. bracket made specifically for me, Weston. <laughs> uh, I thought you were
0: going to say the bracket of death. Usually there's one.
5: <laughs> it is also that.
0: Talk us through it, Weston.
5: This is uh, There's some really interesting uh, matchups in here. We start off with uh, DeValkyra uh, versus Cavalier, uh, Two powerhouses right off the bat, just in terms of volume alone. Uh, I would say that Valkyra starts off at a disadvantage because it's not really a a full opera it's part of a whole you know it's it's the second opera in the ring cycle of all the operas in the cycle it's probably the one that stands best by itself um but i i always think of it as a part of uh the whole saga uh however on the other hand it is if we're talking about popularity um oh oh man There are some powerhouse musical moments, uh, including ones that transcend opera, uh, uh, period. You know, uh, The Ride of the Valkyries, um, it's so popular that, you know, I would say it's probably the most well-known song from an opera that you could just kind of walk down the street, and play it, and people would recognize it. it shows up in movies, commercials, um, everywhere. So that's a big point in, in, its, uh, in its favor. It also has a Wagner libretto, which means it has a very strong unity of words and music and also a lot of alliteration, which I love. Um, and that's always something I like to think that the best opera would have, right? You know, some sort of musical, thematic, and lyrical unity, um, because oftentimes you'll you'll go to the opera, you'll see something that has gorgeous music, uh, but the plot's terrible. Uh, I'm looking at you, Il Trovatore, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's it's and I think that that unity is not something that we can really ignore. However, unfortunately, Di Walküre is going up against the Rosenkavalier, which also has a fantastic libretto. Um, I mean, there's a reason that Hugo von Hofmannsthal is still a well-known name in an era where librettists were were often just kind of forgotten completely. Um, it also feels like a more relevant opera in a way that Valk- Valkyrie no longer is. Uh, the choice of the pants role for Octavian has um, led the opera to be adopted by many of uh, my opera-loving LGBT plus friends to a degree you don't really see with a lot of works in uh, the, the canon. And the music is uh, just glorious. It's um, it's shimmering. It's beautiful, but it's complex. It's interesting. There's layers. Even even though it doesn't go uh, into atonal uh, land like Electra and Zalame to extent, it, it's more complicated. But it also feels very personal uh, and all that. And it's funny too, you know, <laughs> which is which is a, a really interesting balancing act because you can sit through De Valkura and not crack a smile once but if you go to De, uh, Rose and Cavalier you're going to have a good time um, between all of the heart-wrenching uh, arias about aging and all that sort of stuff uh, so I'm going to have to give uh, this round to De Rose and Cavalier to celebrate let's just listen to a little treat uh, the presentation of the rose this is from the uh, Schulte recording with uh, Yvonne Minton um, as Octavian and Helen Donath as Sophie. (laughs) No, never let it be said That's that weird. i cannot be objective
1: <laughs> i mean i will i will say that i agree with you as far as like i prefer rosen cavalier but uh, i do think that rosen cavalier
2: drags in the third act um, oh my gosh that prank could be about a fifth as long and it would have been plenty prank but the first <laughs> act is perfection so it's
3: so good so-
0: uh, more Wagner than Weston in your second pairing, Flying Dutchman versus Mozart's The Magic Flute.
5: Uh, well, this is an interesting pairing. Uh, it's uh, it's hard for me to imagine uh, operas that are like further in my mind from each other. I'm, uh, I mean, for example for example, Flying Dutchman, you know, is Wagner. Granted, it's baby, baby, baby Wagner, um, it, uh, but uh, you're, you're Go putting up against uh, Mozart's final opera at the height of his powers, and here we have uh, Flying Dutchman just kind of starting out. I mean, it's not his first opera, but it's Wagner's first uh, opera in the canon, so to speak, um, namely uh, operas performed at Bayreuth. Um, and it's kind of a it's kind of a weird one, to be honest. If you want to talk about dragging, there are there are bits in the Flying Dutchman that. Drag, but it's the shortest it, opera, isn't it? It drag, like if you sit down and watch uh, uh, Flying Dutchman and then sit down and watch Goethe Demmerung, you, you do not feel the time in Goethe Demmerung in nearly the same way as you do when you're watching uh, Flying Dutchman. And I stand by that. Um, it it doesn't really feel like Wagner yet. It's it's that, still that's very not
0: true, man. Flying Dutchman doesn't even have an intermission. I don't think,
5: does it? Uh, it well, there's there's a couple different versions. It's not supposed to. It's not supposed to. But it, I, uh, every time I've seen it live, I think I've seen it with an intermission. Um, but uh, as I said, it doesn't quite feel like Wagner yet. It feels very Italianate still. There's light motifs. There there are themes that he picks up on that are that become important in later works um, like the redemption redemptive love of a woman uh, um, and there are uh, lots of moments that prefigure uh, later works musically um, it's interesting to draw parallels between Dutchman and uh, uh, Tristan and Isolde um, but when you're sitting there thinking about that well that's interesting and I do enjoy listening to it with that framework you start to get that itch well why am I not listening to Tristan you know what I mean uh, and uh, and M- Magic Flute, on the other hand, is so full of humor and it has this like anti-establishment energy that still kind of comes across today. It's, it was my first opera that I ever saw uh, and it continues to be the first opera for many children around the world, um, but it also has a lot that adults can appreciate if you know anything about the history or like Masonic codes, you know, it's, I got a lot of fun little things to pick, pick out there. Uh, the music is full of fun melodies that have all become iconic. It's more supernatural in terms of story um, than a lot of Mozart operas, but it still feels very human. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, Matt, with Don Giovanni, it still tells a human story, even though these are essentially fairy tale characters. Um, and because of that, I know, I know I'm going against two Wagner operas in my very first two rounds, but I'm going to have to go with Magic Flute. So let's take a listen to the most iconic aria, Uh, a little clip from Der Hülle Rache, um, sung by Diana Damrau from that ROH production that everyone's seen on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, you should. She's just so nasty. I love it. (laughs)
0: And well, you can forget about the comp tickets to the Bayreuth Festival. <laughs> I know!
2: I'm, I'm literally... are going to revoke your Wagner card.
0: <laughs> probably, so now this is, again, interesting, right? Over into the, the third pairing, Rosalka and Iolanta. Is it strange to you that these two Eastern European composers are in this pair?
5: Uh, in some ways. I was surprised to see Iolanta on the list, but uh, the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. Both of them are Eastern European operas, obviously. They're Slavic. Uh, uh, One is Czech, uh, the Dvorak, of course, and one is Russian, which is, uh, of course, Tchaikovsky. Um, And they're both kind of on the rise. Uh, Rusalka has a bit of a head start uh, as far as that goes. There's been a couple of iconic productions over the past couple decades, particularly by Rene Fleming, um, um, which we'll hear a little bit of in a bit.
2: and, uh, and Gabriela Benachkova before her was like the big Czech diva who exactly. kind of started a lot of this, yeah.
5: And a lot of that comes from not so much the opera itself, but the strength of a single aria, uh, the song to the moon, uh, which has been regularly sung in concerts all over the world since it was first heard, you know, in the West. Iolanta doesn't quite have that. Um, there are some excellent uh, bits. There's some interesting arias. Dva Mira is 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 really neat, um, and it's made a lot of impressive inroads recently with Western audiences, especially with the recent uh, Met production with Anna Netrebko that they tacked on to uh, Bluebeard's Castle, and more recently there was a production here uh, at Chicago Opera Theater, um, and uh, uh, but it's it's also Tchaikovsky's last opera like Magic Flute, but unlike Magic Flute, it doesn't feel as much of a culmination of Tchaikovsky's work uh, as uh, Magic Flute is to Mozart. Uh, it, Tchaikovsky himself considered the opera a little bit uh, of a disappointment, which is you know kind of a bummer when he considers his last opera. But just compare the popularity of Iolanta to The Nutcracker, which was uh, Tchaikovsky's last ballet, which actually debuted on the same night as part of the same program, as Iolanta, and because of that, and and, and you, if you look at that and you see how Nutcracker has took taken the entire world by storm, everyone knows it. Dance with the Sugar Plum Fairies, love it, and then people have to be like Iolanta. What's that? You know, it's 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 almost unfair, I think, to uh, to put that one up against something that has Song to the Moon in it, which is so well known. Even if you don't know the opera Rusaka. Uh, and as a result, I do have to give it to uh, Rusalka. This is uh, a recording from the Charles Macaris, uh production, uh, the studio recording, rather, uh, with Renee Fleming just absolutely nailing it.
1: I think that uh, I do. this this bracket was stacked against uh, Iolanta. I think if if it was Eugene yeah. Onegin, you'd be it would be
2: hard for Dvorak's opera to get through this round. And, and I think that I think that the the uh, common theme between those is they're both kind of fairy tale operas. Yes, Iolanta, yes. So they're they're going on that common ground.
0: Well, it, well, Onegin does come up in the final pairing against, um what is good enough.
5: Yes, we got Boris and Eugene duking it out in the field. He's throwing a left and he's throwing a right. It's it's good stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, how was that for your Dude, sport, this is
0: right? basketball. You're, mi- you're mixing your metaphors I...
5: here, but I kind of <laughs> loved it. So uh, as you said, we've got another Tchaikovsky opera uh, versus a uh, good friend, Mussorgsky, uh, going head to head. Uh, and I think Onyegin uh, initially enters the battle on a much better uh, footing, certainly than Iolanta, but but against Boris at first blush, I think that he's got a lot of advantages. Uh, it's arguably the most well-known Russian opera outside of Russia, and it's undeniably a masterwork in the way that Iolanta is not. Um, it's a great deal more personal than many of Tchaikovsky's operas, uh, mostly because you really feel the composer's voice through kind of the avatar of uh, Tatiana. Uh, And and you feel like he's speaking through her in a way that's really, really unusual, I think, not just within Tchaikovsky's uh, canon, but, you know, um, through any opera composer. Uh, And it's, I would call it not just Tchaikovsky's best opera, but also his best work, period, quite frankly. Um, And it's also, interestingly enough, his most uh, Russian-sounding work, uh, heavy square scare, uh, scare quotes there. Um, it uses uh, some non-Western modes and rhythms, uh, which is something you miss in a lot of Tchaikovsky. Uh, the story's unusual, and uh, the libretto is put together from a Pushkin story. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Alexander Pushkin, uh, he was essentially the Russian Shakespeare. So you're good on that level. It's a good libretto. Uh, and the quality of text really shines through the opera adaptation. But then, just when you think it's out, we got Boris Gunov in the corner. It's also based on a Pushkin story, uh, which has been lightly or heavily um, edited by the composer, depending on which version you're talking about. Um, where And I would say where Onegin contains Tchaikovsky's most Russian-sounding music, Boris Gunov, in my mind, is Russian music, at least in the classical vein. It's less popular than Onyegin in most parts of the world, but its impact on subsequent Russian composers has been far greater than Onyegin, especially during the Soviet era. You think about uh, composers like Shostakovich, Prokofiev, um, these people who are looking to Mussorgsky for inspiration with how to bring forth the voice of the Russian people. And uh, while Onegin is very personal, uh, Boris is an opera about and for the the masses. Essentially, uh, there are moments that are just as emotionally re- resonant as in Eugene Onegin, but uh, but it's 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 politically relevant in a way that we, an opera box score, I find ourselves always ask opera to be, especially when we're talking about new works. We're like, oh, it has to, you know be relevant, be talking about something that's important. Uh, Boris Gudinov did that uh, in a way that not a lot of other, uh, particularly Slavic compositions of the era outside the Mighty Five were doing. Um, And so, in in short, Anyakin may be timeless, but Gudinov is still politically relevant here in the year 2020. And because of that, I'm going to give the trophy to Boris. Um, So to celebrate that, we're going to listen to just a little bit of the coronation scene where um, uh, Boris is singing My Soul Grieves, which is the Gergiev recording of the 1869 uh, edition with Nikolai Putilin as Boris. Mm.
0: And thanks for talking us through kind of the separating the wheat from the chaff here. Now, now we really start to get serious in these final pairings Magic Flute and Rosen Cavalier, and then uh, Enough versus Rosalka. Again, both those Eastern Europeans ending up against each
5: other. Yeah, it's uh, that's how it goes in any sort of bracket situation. I'm going to kind of go through these a little quick because really, when it comes down to it, these were a lot easier, I think, in my head than the first uh, round. So Magic Flute versus Der Rosenkavalier, they both have humor and irony, but frankly, uh, Rosenkavalier is a more full experience, dramatically speaking, and I think its libretto really pushes it over the edge, as well as the sheer might of the orchestration against just what is essentially a witty little zongspiel, uh, song uh, zingspiel, rather. Um, and so we can hear a little clip of uh, just a little bit of humor from the Baron Ochs, Uh, uh, with Kurt Böhm singing uh, the famous waltz um, to give you a sense of that humor that's inherent in the text.
0: Well, I'm sure a chickenator didn't think it was just a teeny little jing spiel, as you call it, (laughs) but, uh, talk us through the, uh, the second pairing here on the sweet 16.
5: Boris versus Rusaka. When it comes right down to it, Boris, as I said before, Boris is the kind of opera. We've always been advocating on opera box score, socially conscious, distinct point of view, unapologetic, unapologetic in its presentation. Uh, And it's got some just killer choral numbers. And I want to listen to uh, just one of those. Uh, This is the finale of the coronation scene. And frankly, for me, that's what puts it over the edge against (laughs) Drusovka.
0: We want to know, Weston, who is going to get the shot at facing off with the winner of the French region, which Oliver is going to talk about next week.
5: All right. We've got uh, the Clash of the Titans here. Der Rosenkavalier versus Boris Gudinov. Not operas you often mention in the same breath, but here we are. Uh, both of these operas have things to say, Um Uh, trademark. And and I love that both are musically unique and groundbreaking for their respective time periods. And both are emblematic of their respective cultures at the time and place they were created. However, Rose and Cavalier, I think better balances the personal and the political uh, and the musical world it creates is just genuinely tear jerking, funnier. And I think ultimately more accessible than Boris uh, if only for the reason that there are about 40 different versions of Boris and like zero of them are definitive if you want to, more information about that you can go back and listen to my Hall of Fame episode on Mazorsky. Um, and when it comes right down to it Der Cavalier also has the trio which we're about to hear with Yvonne Minton again Helen Donath and Regine Crespin.
1: so excited
5: i know it's it a big shocker i mean <laughs> no wagner uh boris didn't make it all the way to the end i i am i'm gonna curl myself up in a ball and just kind of cry for the rest of the night
0: i mean that's what happens in the ncaa is so much of it is about the opponents that you pick and you don't have any control over that and you just got to string the wins together <laughs> and uh, we're going to see if these, if your two operas, yeah, Weston and Matt, fare against mine and Oliver's next week on the show. Probably should
1: have asked you guys to do this at the top, but just to wrap this up, I'll give you a chance to think, Weston and Matt. You're going to be on the spot. How does Don Giovanni represent Italian opera?
2: The history of Italian to op- when I what I look for when I'm listening to Italian opera is how. The composer specifically uses the human voice to bring the text alive more so than like the entire vocal orchestral combination, which I feel like is a whole is a much bigger thing when you're looking at like Fran- French or German music. And I also am really interested in the Italian language is so rhythmic that the way that composers use that kind of rhythmic propulsion throughout the uh, throughout both slow and fast music and the the variation in tempo I think is a lot more uh stylistically it, it, that's much more what i expect in, in the style of italian opera and don giovanni checks all those boxes off and more and weston uh,
1: i have ideas about what german opera is supposed to be in its origins but how does rosenkavalier come out of this section uh with the badge of like western europe including you know um czech so the Czech Republic, or from what was it back then, uh, when when Result was composed, whatever it was back then, you know,
5: Moravia.
1: Yeah,
5: both, I mean, well, both uh, Eastern European and German uh, music uh, tend a lot more towards um, he- heavy drama in a way. Um, the, if you if you listen to uh, hardcore Russian opera and hardcore German opera, they don't sound similar. But thematically, there's always the there's so few light operas. There's there's so few operas that don't say anything. Um, you know, uh, you don't have a light Rossini comedy in uh, in Moscow uh, or in Berlin. Uh, <laughs> um, and that being said, I do think that the uh, Cavalier, while it is a comedy, says something about the state of the world that it was created in and says it in a profound and distinctly German way in, how, in terms of how it constructs this massive orchestra with exploring uh, these musical techniques as a part of the unity of the whole musical experience. You're not getting accompaniment to voices. You are getting a complete Gesamtkunstwerk. And there it is. There's my Wagner reference for the day, even I though just, he didn't make it through the rounds.
1: I will just say that, um, you know, for me, Russia, I mean, a German opera is about uh, magic and this, like, storytelling of heroes, uh, hero's journey. And um, Rosenkavalier does have that in Octavian, but mm-hmm, it also mm-hmm. has this nod towards the Enlightenment with this character of the Marshalin. So in, in, in certain ways, you know, the Enlightenment is poking through in both of these sections so go for humanity
5: (laughs) oliver says go humanity yes that's the quote for this episode
1: all right france versus english speaking countries next week
0: i'm looking forward to it it's going to be a real clash of the titans
3: this just in
1: the 2-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week. The Metropolitan Opera's At Home Gala, streamed live from the homes of artists all over the world, featured 40 musical selections ranging from a cappella folk songs to orchestral works stitched together in post-production to the so-called reigning diva of the company on some unnamed stage with a blue-haired pianist. Highlights included Aaron Morley's self-accompanied couplet from The Daughter of the Regiment to Roberto Alagna literally climbing the walls of his home studio. Opera Philadelphia has announced the Digital Festival O. General Director David B. Devin says the virtual festival, quote, celebrates the joy so many singers, musicians, composers, librettists, conductors, directors, and designers have brought into our lives through these new operas and productions, giving us an opportunity to share in the power of music and theater, while reminding us that we will all gather together again in the future. It is our hope to see everyone in September at Festival O20, but until that time, Festival O stands for online. The digital festival of five productions includes four recent world premieres. Des Moines Metro Opera has just announced the cancellation of this summer's 48th annual Festival of Opera. The company will present a virtual season, which will include the Emmy Award-winning production of Britain's Billy Budd and Dvorak's Ruzalka. In a video message, General Director Michael Eagle says that the company will honor contracts with all principal artists, apprentices, production staff, design teams, conductors, directors, pianists, interns, and members of the festival orchestra. Opera Maine's summer season has now been pushed back a year. Short one there. English National Opera is staging what are thought to be the world's first drive-in opera performances, which audiences can drive to and watch from their cars. In early September, 300 cars, motorbikes, and bicycles will be allowed onto the grounds. Through their, own open, through their open windows, the audience will watch condensed versions of La Boheme and the Magic Flute. All live singers and musicians will be spaced out according to government guidelines. With disruption comes innovation, and the spirit of invention took hold of composer Kamala Sankram, librettist Rob Handel, and here Arts Center Artistic Director Kristen Martink inspiring the trio to create the world's first Zoom-based opera. People from all around the globe tuned into New York City, City's HERE Art Center, that's H-E-R-E Art Center, world premiere of All Decisions Will Be Made by Consensus last Friday, which co-starred friend of the show, Zachary James. The Michigan Opera Theater Children's Chorus has announced it will present a one-act opera online as part of their MOT Learns at Home educational program. The 30-minute opera will feature hundreds of video submissions by 44 participants. Friend of the show, Lydia Yankovskaya, moderates Inner Workings, a digital conversation series that aims to foster understanding across the art form, among those on stage, behind the scenes, and in the audience, by examining distinct roles within the opera industry, how the crisis is affecting us, and what opportunities may exist for the future. This one's for Toby. Lawrence Brownlee invites audiences to enjoy coffee and song the bel canto specialist performs with his florida from his florida home accompanied by pianist Myra huang in new york as of april 27th there have been three coffee and songs with guests nicholas Pan and susanna phillips it's not yet on a regular schedule so check brownlee's facebook page where the first performance resides after a number of german artists wrote an open letter to minister of culture monica gruters the german government has announced a plan to help artists whose work was lost due to the pandemic the proposal offers a payout benefit to self-employed persons, individual artists, and small arts organizations with up to 10 employees. As of April 22nd, Monica Gutters has not replied to the open letter. Soprano Sandra Rodronofsky and Carrie Alkema have teamed up to launch a new show entitled Screaming Divas. The program has been billed as two best friends stuck at home and wanting to talk about all things while drinking a cocktail. Screaming Divas will be aired on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. OBS would like to go on record as ready, willing, and able to do a crossover episode. The City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra has invited National Health Service workers to attend concerts for free. 5,000 tickets will be put aside for a variety of concerts from the current season and beyond. With around 10% of the chorus members themselves working for the NHS, the initiative is a public acknowledgement of those working tirelessly to help others. Exit stage right. Soprano Arlene Saunders has died of coronavirus. She performed two seasons at the San Francisco Opera. In 1967, she appeared as Freya in Wagner's Das Rheingold, the title role in Charpentier's Louise, and Marguerite in Gounod's Faust. The American soprano also performed at La Scala, the Met, New York City Opera, and was named Kammerzengerin at Stadts, Stadtsoper Hamburg, Staatsoper Hamburg, which became her home opera house. That story comes for us comes to us from San Francisco Opera. Peter Jonas, ex or Jonas, ex intendant of Bavarian State Opera, has died at age 73 from cancer. Jonas was an innovative arts administrator who served as the head of English National Opera and the Bavarian State Opera. Friends and colleagues report that Donald Miller, the creator of the Voce Vista program, and author of the book Resonance in Singing, as well as being a scientist who taught and inspired many singing teachers, has passed away on April 22nd. And on this day, we are recording on April 27th, it was the 1637 premiere of Cadmus et Hermione by Jean-Baptiste Lully, followed by the 1720 premiere of Handel's Radamisto, the premiere of Gounod's Romeo et Juliette, in 1867, and the premiere of Jules Massenet's Le Roi de Lahore in 1877. Plus, we celebrate the birthday anniversaries of composer Friedrich, Friedrich von Flottal, born in 1812, and American soprano Judith Blägen, born this day in 1940. And that's your two-minute drill. uh singing a little bit of Ariadne from 1968 in Hamburg with the with Matthias Künsch as conductor. What a voice. What a name. <laughs> she had a name, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
5: You're not wrong. Yes. Uh, I, I wanted to uh mention before we really break into like the meaty stories, like the intense 1950s B-movie vibe I get from the whole idea of a drive-in opera house. I am so excited by the very notion of it. Could you imagine just, you know, you're driving up and you're going steady and you're necking with your sweetheart in the car in the back. Oh, 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 And she's wearing a varsity jacket.
2: It's (laughs) honestly impossible for me to uh, picture a drive-in movie without just seeing the movie Grease. So (laughs) I don't know what opera they would do that isn't the musical Grease, but... We'll see. We'll have to it's
0: find just, out. It's just so strange to me that of all the places that are going to do this, it's going to be in London. I mean, the English are the last people who would do anything as vulgar as go to a drive-in anything. <laughs> That's a drive-in <laughs> restaurant or a drive-in movie or drive-in opera.
1: I'm sorry. Is maybe for it's- times, George. You are our resident uh, English specialist. Is Eno based in London?
0: Yeah, yeah. English okay. National Opera is, is based in at the Coliseum Theatre, which is right off of Trafalgar Square. Uh, the Alexandra Palace, which is where this is going to take place, is in North London. It, it's a big field, basically. Mm-hmm. And yes, like you can fit 300, you know, tricycles and petty bikes and um,
5: whatever know, they drive in London, really.
0: Well, it's on the wrong side of the road, right? So I, <laughs> I, I
5: don't know.
0: I just, I'm waiting for the first American company to do this because this actually could work well in the U S
5: hmm. this screams a California opera company, you know, LA, yeah, you would definitely
2: have, to... <laughs> they, they just have to find a venue where you can see through all the smog in LA.
1: So the big story of course, is the Met opera at home gala and, um, I'm, you know, I'm conflicted in that, you know, we are definitely advocates of of artists being paid, and so we have a little bit of we take issue with how the Metropolitan Opera uh, announced the cancellation of the rest of their season, and how some artists found out when the general public found out. At the same time, many of the people who performed uh, on Saturday are artists that we love, and we're so excited to snoop and see what their homes look like and to hear how they negotiate this very challenging circumstance of you know either a not having an accompanist or b um accompanying themselves or c working with a you know a pre-recorded track or d just saying the hell with it and i'm going to invite a pianist over to my house because that's the most dignified way to do this which some did um, I watched the entire thing and I posted. Dang, Oliver, uh, I, I did ho- too. And I posted. Jeez, it on our, I watched
2: it. Yeah, I watched it yesterday.
1: I posted on our Facebook page a little cheat sheet for who performed when and what they sang and highlights for me. Uh, just like in terms of musical, musically satisfying, were uh, Erin Morley accompanying herself on Chaconne and playing very beautifully, mm-hmm. I must say, and like adding a high F or whatever high E at the end of it. Uh, Matthew Polanzani, friend of the show, uh, self-accompanying O'Danny Boy, which was just so tender and just the right amount of, you know, sweet, really, really, you know, mixed head voice singing that just made it very sentimental sounding. Uh, I really love Nadine Sierra. I feel like she is the right age and the right, right. Gener- generation to understand how the technology works. And she had a pre-recorded track and she stared right into the camera and acted as if her computer was Rodolfo. And it was so believable. <laughs> not, not many people succeeded in, you know, giving a comfortable, dramatic presentation, but she did.
0: Mm. Well, uh, Oliver, her, talk her us through
1: the... H- hold on, I'm,
0: technical I'm,
1: I'm, I'm almost there, I'm almost there. And then uh, Gunther Greizberg, uh accompanied himself in an aria from Die Frau, which I'd never heard before. And he also has a beautiful like, at-home studio, and um, he's just a very handsome and he, guy. And he like... plays
0: a mean accordion, doesn't he? Uh, Oliver, talk us through the the technical scope of this, right? Because now basically that we've made these little TV studios in our rooms... Every day of life is just basically a tech rehearsal. It's all about lighting. It's all about audio. We're struggling with the same things on this show that others are struggling with out there. But talk us through the, the range of technical setup and success and failure from the Met Gala.
1: Well, I'll say that um, the New York Times did a very careful article about this. That, And they're probably better at describing what the setup was better than I am. But in essence, each artist was uh, not given anything in particular to help them in this endeavor. They all had to use a combination of their you know cell phones or if they have you know hD cameras i don 't know who had that i don 't think anybody did. Some people used their laptops. It was clear some understood lighting and some understood how to prop things up. Some people had tripods some people didn 't. I mean, like I said... My Nad-
5: favorite was uh, uh, Lizette Oropesa. Uh, she had her accompaniment, accompanist on the TV behind her so <laughs> yeah. you could see them play. I thought that was, that was a brilliant That was brilliant, move.
1: yeah. Uh, like I said, Nadine Sierra uh, had almost nothing to help her. She just sang right to her laptop, and it was one of the more successful ones. And then there were people like roberto alagna and his new wife Alexandra <laughs> oh my Kortsock, gosh it was pure chaos who had like clearly had a camera set up on a tripod i don't know if it was a laptop or if it was an actual camera but they invited an accompanist into their home and they used their home studio as a stage and he literally did all the staging you would do in an opera house and it was balls to the walls singing and he used <laughs> home props he has like one of those libraries that has like a, uh, you know, a climb up ladder to get to the top shelf. And he was like literally on that ladder singing some phrases, standing behind the piano. It was craziness. And actually, I have to say, it was one of the better performances because he just committed to it. And he must have felt ridiculous doing it, but it was very entertaining.
2: <laughs> or so, he also sounded fantastic. Yeah. He's one of those singers that's like, famous like, like fresher than... Fresher than I've heard him sound in years. Mm. Um, Angela, uh, getting to. Go on. Well, and also just like getting to do that duet was clearly very sentimental for them since that was the show that he met his current wife, Alexandra Korsak doing.
1: Yeah.
3: So
2: they were have in it to have a blast and you couldn't help but be swept away with them.
1: Yeah. But, but also sort of funny is that uh, Angela Georgiou gave only a spoken contribution. She like said, good luck to you all or whatever at the very beginning of it. And uh, she didn't sing. Um, which was interesting because that's also an opera that they performed together and recorded together of Roberto Lee right. when he was married to Angelo Georgiou. And there was also some other couples that are now divorced that appeared separately, like Stephen <laughs> Costello and Eileen Perez. and um I forget who else, but they're they're not the only ones that like now have new <laughs> spouses that were performing. Um anyway, um I have to say that some singers who I was really looking forward to hearing maybe did not negotiate the circumstance as well as others did. So their performances were sort of lackluster. Uh, But I was really happy, um, yeah, for performances like Gunther Greisbach and, um, you know, who just found the right level of, like, intimacy and sang beautifully and had enough distance from the camera. Mm -hmm. I think that's sort of what you're asking, George, is, like, how do you, you know, how do you account for that this software... Does not like silence, and I think in all across all platforms, whenever there is silence, the mic goes mute. So you know, classical music is music that actually has a lot of silence as part of the fabric of it. And when it goes silence, the sound just goes away, and then it takes just a little bit of a little bit of time. There's a delay for when the microphone realizes, oh, they're making noise again, and turns back on. So that's that's a tricky thing to negotiate. I'll also say that yeah, some but- pe- some people had their uh, piano tracks on some kind of device like Alina Garancha had it on like an iPad or an iPod mini <laughs> and she had a little bit of time she needed a little bit of time to like pull up the track and press play and it didn't start right away so she just like pressed it and just sort of like looked in the camera until it started up and like those little things like are uh you know re- really felt homemade you know
0: and it was like truly live streamed yes
1: well, there was some pre-recorded stuff like there was orchestra tracks that they all, you know, the orchestra members contributed their part and they had to be Popin'
5: Yeah,
1: Vopenciero and the Preludes Longgren, which was actually amazing. Um, yeah. you know, uh Janik Nezes again conducted and they all contributed their individual tracks and it was it came together and it sounded really professional. But that could not definitely have been done live. That had to be done ahead of time. No,
2: absolutely. That was that was edited together in post. I honestly thought I also wanted uh Shout out some props to I thought Renee Fleming's Ave Maria was a oh, yeah. really beautiful choice, even though it's not necessarily a uh, even though it's not necessarily like a an aria that works well with the zoom for the for the reasons you were saying, because it has a lot of stillness, a lot of quiet. Um, but just I was really drawn into the intimacy that she was able to create in that moment. Uh, and, and I found it really stunning in uh it's stunningly emotional.
1: She, uh, she, um, Nadine Sierra and Anthony Roth Costanzo seem like they've had a lot of experience in front of the camera, so they're not nervous about that aspect of it. And it was right. interesting to see, like, some real seasoned artists, like Jonas Kaufman, who I adore, just look a little bit awkward, you know, singing to a camera.
5: And and I mean, it's a whole not other just...
0: art form now, right? It's the whole game has changed.
5: And not just the singers too. If there's one thing that the Met Gala taught me is that uh, the the Met needs a hype man who is not Peter Gelb. Oh my god! You know what oh my I mean? Goodness. Oh god! Every it was moment. like your older uncle who it was like
2: your older <laughs> <laughs> uncle who won't stop interrupting you at Thanksgiving dinner
5: uh, and so pronouncing so, I things I, wrong.
1: I, and his <laughs> lighting was so terrible. He looked like it like he was gonna drink blood after he was done. Like it, was,
2: <laughs> it was really. He not. kept saying unique eh? <laughs> You, unique, yeah. uh, instead <laughs> as the uh, the new music director, and he Met also apparently ca- he named. also
1: called Anna Trepko the reigning diva of the Met, which is so insulting to all the other people who actually participated in this thing. Her, yeah, she
2: didn't
5: even show up. I know her and Yusuf had here.
1: pre-recorded something from I don't know when. It's not clear when, but they were like at on a stage uh, with a pianist. You know,
2: from my um f- from my research, it seems like she. They they were combining their their duties for the Met and for the Wiener Staatsoper, which wow. is doing something similar this week. And so those were recorded at the uh the Austria National Radio.
5: Yeah. That makes sense because they live in um, Vienna. Those are mastered very nicely, unlike most of the other pieces. You know, Oliver, you were talking about
0: silence earlier being so important in classical music, and it's absolutely true. It's a great point. This summer is going to be one of the most silent summers on record. When I read these stories about Des Moines opera canceling for the summer, uh, Wolf Trap basically canceled for the summer or has like a very reduced program, Marilla, there's no possible way that Marilla is going to be able to continue. I think about all these summer programs and how they're all going silent. I finally got around to watching the video at Opera Theater of St. Louis. And like, I'm genuinely upset by all this. And coronavirus and the, the pandemic comes home to roost in very odd times, in very odd ways. And today was one of those days for me watching all these cancellations and all these summer artistic directors saying we're not going to be there I was truly upset by that
1: well um, Opera Philadelphia is remedying some of their cancellation by offering this digital festival and we'll get to see the video archive of and Katya which was from last year's festival uh, by Philip Venables and Ted Huffman we'll get to see Breaking the Waves which I'm very excited for Sky on Swings by Lembit Beecher and Hannah Moskovich we shall not be moved by daniel bernard Roumet and mark bamuti joseph plus their 2014 production of the barber of seville and that is actually embargoed information we're recording on the 27th and that press release will come out um tomorrow the 28th so depending on how fast it takes you guys to edit this episode we're going to be just <laughs> in time for that
0: one <laughs> well you know david divan <laughs> <in Opera>, philadelphia <laughs> david divan he he can do no wrong uh, Everything he touches turns to gold. This is just one more phenomenal idea that he, with an incredible t- team behind him, is going to turn into reality. And to say that Festival O stands for online, pure genius.
5: And speaking of uh, pure genius and things to be excited about.
0: Oh, thanks, screaming... Weston, Appreciate
5: it. <laughs> uh, screaming divas sounds like the best thing that's ever happened in the history of all time uh i desperately want to see Sandra and carrie just like getting a little bit tipsy together just talking about whatever comes to their heads and that's what i desperately want this to be i'm so excited for it
2: yeah i watched the first couple minutes of it to prepare for the show and i did not x that uh that window out when i was done so that i can come back <laughs> to it and finish the rest of it later. i was waiting it, until
5: after the recording to go for it myself um so it looks to be wild
1: Uh, des moines uh, announced the cancellation of their season today and as a result we will get to see that billy bud that we talked about with zachary james um a couple episodes ago plus the Ruzalka which he was in uh there are more productions that are going to be released uh, but those are the two that i'm very i'm looking forward to did anybody watch the uh what's it called decisions will be made by
5: consensus I could not. I missed both the performances like a fool. Uh, I'm hoping that they recorded in some fashion so that I can see it because I'm, yeah. The idea of a live Zoom uh, musical piece is so tricky because you. you I, I don't know how they negotiated like time. Um, balance it's a it's a whole new medium it's it's like uh early recording technology almost where you have to learn the limitations as you make the pieces and if this goes on for much longer it would it'd be really interesting to see the development of the music as it relates to those pieces. like you know for example early recorded songs uh, tended, uh, once once they figured out what their limitations of the technology were, they started composing in a range that was more um, uh, m- more easily picked up by the early microphones. And uh, um, they began adopting various uh, increased orchestra sizes from just going from a meca- piano accompaniment. And uh, so from a musicological standpoint, I find it fascinating. And from an artistic standpoint, um, I... Anything Zachary James is a part of, I want to see so <laughs> uh, if it does show up uh, I'm sure that uh will uh, i I can give the full scoop if I well, see
1: it um Matt, as long as we're talking about the technical difficulty of um, you know doing something live on Zoom, what did you think about yesterday's Sondheim celebration? I didn't watch it, but i i've been I was watching my Facebook feed and everybody discussing how it
2: started half hour late and how there were technical glitches so so I, w- I was finishing watching the Met Gala stream when that Sondheim Gala was starting, uh, and watching everyone complain on my feed about how, how how it was just kind of a mess so far. I decided to wait for them to figure it out and just watch the full video once it got uh, trimmed. Mm-hmm. So I haven't actually seen the whole thing yet. I've only seen some clips, um, but it just the way that uh, the way that people react to it in, in terms of online personas is a really interesting like byproduct of coronavirus for me because I do get this sense that everyone is a lot more patient with one another on the internet than we used to be um just recognizing that we're all going through a thing and it has no set end date and it has many many phases and we're really only still in the first one uh it, you know, it's a reminder of the humanity to see that that play out in kind of the aftermath of the online spaces as well.
0: I mean, it's like the opposite of the Oscars, right, which is choreographed down to every pinky left and statuette grab. And although I didn't see the Sondheim bit, um, it's It was a reminder, as Matt says, that like, we're in some pretty uncharted territory here technologically. To try and have a production meeting with everybody remotely to create this thing technologically is phenomenally difficult. And I think a lot of generosity is really called for in this moment as we are creating art, making art, delving into live streaming, and trying to figure out how all these things are going to intersect with the creation of new media especially when you involve music
5: artistically and aesthetically. It's also really interesting too, because there's a degree of vulnerability in uh, putting yourself out there without access to those things, which you would ordinarily uh, have access to um, as a performer. You know, if you're, if you're on Broadway, you don't have the microphone, you don't have the mixers. If you're in, in opera, you don't have the orchestra um, uh, and and, and you don't even have like uh, during the Met live streams, uh, they commented a few times on how they were, you know, because they're all around the world. They had to like get permission from their neighbors to sing at, at midnight, you know, <laughs> uh, and it's it, it there's a certain like genuine vulnerability in that that I think is helpful to remind people of because I think that it's easy for people to uh, forget that when they're going to see an opera or a musical, they're still seeing people on stage, you know? uh, They might be a a king or a queen or a a wizard or whatever, um, but they still need to be taken care of. They still need the basics of living in a society. And, you know, I I think that's something that's not just in the opera and musical world, but in the arts in general, Whenever I see something like that going out, I think it's a good reminder um, uh, that, you know, all these people are are people and we need to help people.
1: Before we go to good call, bad call, I just I'm noticing now, Matt, that you had a couple more things you wanted to say about the gala, maybe about Javier Camarena or about Joyce. I'm not sure what your intention was there.
2: Oh, I just I, those are the ones that I those are the ones who really stood out to me as like really out that I found particularly moving. I mean Javier Camarena, I could listen to his voice literally all day, every day. Um and to sing that insane aria from Ipirata at the uh at 11 p.m. or something and hit a high D, I think it was. I need to go back with my uh or uh, that was also the source of one of the more awkward parts of the gala where uh <laughs> <laughs> where the host tried to interrupt him in between the uh, cavatine and the cabaletta and cabaletta it was so funny section of his heart he's like hang on wait a minute one minute I, got, I have the second section <laughs>
5: uh, I love that part
1: alright so uh, that's a wrap for this episode um, let's go let's turn it back over to Norm Dell.
3: good call bad call on Opera Box Score.
5: I've got a good call. Go for it. Um, My good call has been um, uh, just uh, checking in on all of my favorite uh, opera singers' Instagram pages. Uh, I had, like, a sort of, like, a somewhat dark-ish day (laughs) a few days ago, uh, and uh, I just started, like, I was like, you know I should update my sort of Instagram uh, 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 feed and see and just like follow and kind of see everyone's doing. And I, I just started like following people, you know, um, and just checking in on people that I had forgotten I even followed because I don't check Instagram that much. but uh, just the amount of like um, uh, videos of people just uh, giving little impromptu performances, m- writing little poems about uh, about, you know, uh keeping spirits up and uh um you know pictures of of kid of their kids and things like that it just really got me in a in a much better place and uh, it's something i can highly recommend if you're feeling down uh during quarantine
2: Uh, matt oliver you just scooped my good call during two minute drill which is that i was excited to continue watching (laughs) live stream galas uh and I'm going to be watching the Sondheim one this week. The only clip that I have watched so far is the, um, the ladies who lunch with Audrey McDonald and
4: Meryl Streep. Off to the gym, then to a fitting,
3: claiming they're fat, then looking grim, cause they've been sitting, choosing a hat. Does anyone still wear a hat? I'll drink to that. Here's to the girls who stay smart. Aren't they again?
1: My good call is something that you might have seen uh, on social media that came out the day after Donald Trump suggested we might try injecting disinfectant into ourselves or sunlighting. Oh, I know
5: exactly <laughs> what you're going to say. There's a, there's a
1: video called Trump recommends injecting disf- disinfectant to cure COVID-19, comma. But it's a Mozart recit.
4: Almost a cleaning because you see it gets in the lungs and it does a tremendous number in the lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that so that you're going to have to use medical doctors with it, but it sounds, it sounds interesting to me. So we'll see.
5: But the whole concept of the light the way it kills it in one minute. That's uh that's pretty powerful. I want to learn how to perform that. I just put in my own performance there.
1: <laughs> I thought that that's was the that zoom was genius. That we all need. And credit to the You're going to have to get pretty good at figured bass pretty quickly. <laughs> that was Jesse Long. Uh, So far, it's only been watched 48,000 times, so you can do a little bit better than that. We'll help you with that one.
0: (laughs) That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell, VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And this podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods, making it really easy to share with your friends. A creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. Thanks again to our guest, Benedict Sun. for Matt Cummings and Weston Williams, and George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera through <laughs> the self mask. We're back with an all new podcast next Tuesday, May 5, with a Mother's Day tribute plus more opera news, more hot takes, but fewer April showers, more Mayflowers. Join us.